Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark, and we stumbled upon a article that is near and dear to my heart because it's all about food and wine pairings, but not just any food and wine pairings, how to pair wine with pizza. I love pizza. You know, when they ask you, if you had to go your entire life on a desert island with only one food, what would you choose? I would choose pizza. Kim, I'm shocked. We agree. I, I'm, I could eat pizza <laughs> 10 meals Yay, a day. Yay, we agreed on a food. Cold, hot, <laughs> any, any way. I love pizza. I could eat it every day. Is there a pizza diet? Because pizza and wine mm. diet, I'd be all over this. Well, you know, there's all different food groups in that slice of pizza. Pizza's king. <laughs> so they talked about pairing. So what was your take on pairing wine with pizza? I do you do this a lot yourself? Um, I will. I will, Sometimes I'll drink wine with pizza. Sometimes I'll drink beer with pizza. I don't know. If pizza is one of those things that is really flexible, I find. And it comes down to what is on your pizza. And to have a good pizza, I feel like is this kind of follows the same rules as to have a good wine. You need to have a balance, you know, balance in flavors, balance in textures, and then finding a wine that matches those flavors and textures on your pizza, and you can really have a, uh, a very pleasant experience. And often you'll hear, oh, I need a nice Italian wine for pizza. It's the first thing I think of when I'm having pizza. I'm going to Italy, right? Mm-hmm. So they, the first thing they talked about is pizza with a red sauce, and popular is Chianti, but it's all about, to me, is the acid in the red sauce to work with acidity of a wine. Right. So that traditional pairing of a margarita pizza or just a cheese pizza that you need to balance out that high acid tomato sauce. But then you also have to take into consideration the cheese too. So you don't want something that's too heavy and that would completely overwhelm something else that's on that pizza, especially if it's something simple like just mozzarella and maybe some Parmesan and maybe a little bit of basil. But I think I agree with you that matching of the red sauce with a wine that has some acidity to it is key. And Chianti works perfect because it's usually a medium body it's a medium light body wine mm-hmm. and the amazing thing i thought and this and you probably love this kim when they were mentioning sparkling wines with red sauce pizza and i thought i i never thought of that but i think it works great and also thinking of if you've got a pepperoni pizza so you've got greasy a little bit spicy and pairing that with sparkling wine as well which when i think about appetizers and when i think about snacks and what things go well with champagne it's always something that's like a little bit greasy and crunchy and maybe has a little bit of a fatty element to it. So I, I've never done pepperoni pizza and champagne before, but now I think I need to try it because that's like, Sparkling ooh, I think that could be really good. Champagne word. Sparkling. So would you recommend, see, I'm not thinking a Prosecco or a sweet sparkling with this type of food. I'm thinking something that's on the dry side. Yeah, I would do dry. I would do drier. I mean, and there are Italian sparkling wines that are not Prosecco. So there's Franciacorta, which is much more like traditional champagne. So that is something that I think is worthwhile for people to search out if they're looking for a sparkling wine that does go particularly well with food. But Cava would be great. Any of the Cremants from France, California sparkling wine, if it's a better quality. So yeah, go 
crazy. Pick one of those. So let's go back to uh, you were talking sparkling wine with the pepperoni pizza. They also mentioned play on the spice. Now, would you agree to have some spicy profile wine or a sweet wine to cut the spice? Mm, I think it depends on the spice. So if it hot pepper spice, then I would lean towards something with a little bit of sweetness. But if it's more like savory spicy, then you might want to go for something a little bit different. So, so if you want to kick up the pepperoni, what would you recommend a spicy wine or, or something to make it neutral? I would go, I would lean more towards the neutral. So See? I don't tend to do... We're always opposite. I know. See, I and that's play, not so you know, bad. Well, I, you'd, we'll have to try it, but I, I, I would want to kick in the spice with uh-huh. some wine that has some spice or some But you're, you're, you're talking like a like spicy pepper, like chili pepper kind pepperoni. of. Pepperoni. Right. Meat, yeah. Right. As yeah. opposed to, um, there was another one that was mentioned for meat pizza, but more like sausage that didn't necessarily have that hot pepper element to right. it, but more of like fennel and green spices, kind of more oregano, more like green bell pepper, like those kind of spice elements. And they suggested doing something like a Syrah for that, where you're not necessarily working with the textures where you're trying to do high acid food, high acid wine, or complementing the spiciness with something sweet. For this one, they were looking for matching the flavors. So choose a wine that has a similar flavor profile to what is on your pizza. So choosing a wine that has sort of those spice flavors, that fennel flavor, that green pepper flavor, and then match that with the the sausage or whatever on your pizza that has those things. Yeah, the meat pizza with sausage, hamburg, you definitely want something that goes with a heavier protein. Mm -hmm. So it has some tannins or some weight to it. Right. So something like a Syrah, something like a Cabernet. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I bet that would be delicious. So the next pizza, Hawaiian, which is one of my favorites. I have so many. I I love the pineapple. I like kind of the sweet and with pepper type of thing playing. So Uh, I'm not a big fan of ham, so I don't think I do too much Hawaiian pizza. You know, I I think I'm more the pineapple than the Mm, ham. I do like pineapple. No, I'm hungry. (laughs) I thought their suggestion for the Hawaiian was excellent with the sweet Riesling to play, I guess, on the sweetness of the fruit. And a lot of Rieslings do have sort of a pineapple-y element to them too. So I can see that using those complementary flavors would be nice. But I'm thinking, you know, now I think about it, I'm thinking more of a Pinot Gris. I'm a bit big on Pinot Gris mm-hmm. lately where the nice apple fruit or that nice tropical fruit would come out. Nice. So we'll try all those. Yeah. Next was white sauce pizza. Right. And they mentioned one of your favorite hot wines right now. All right. So they mentioned rosé for going with a white pizza. And, and I can see how this would work. But I would hope that that white sauce would have a lot of garlic in it because garlic and rosé are one of my favorite combinations. So if you have, you know, a white sauce or a light cheese sauce on there and you've got some garlicky notes and some herbs in there, I think rosé would be would be really fantastic. So you think the acidity of the rosé is good? Yeah, because it would cut through the fat of the cheese. So sometimes you want your wine to have a higher level of acid because the food has high acid. And then sometimes you want to do the opposite. You want to have high acid with something that has a lot of kind of creamy fatness to it so that they will balance each other out as opposed to, I guess, play off of each other. I was thinking with the sauce, something creamy, nice Chardonnay with a nice creamy body. I think that'd be too body. creamy. Too heavy? I feel like that would be heavy with overwhelmed heavy. with creaminess. Yeah. Well, we're hungry. We want to I think so. Now we need to go get a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) What about uh, veggie pizza? This was the one I disagreed with, I have to say, on this list. They suggested veggie pizza with a Chardonnay, so something a little bit heavier. An oaky Chardonnay. An oaky Chardonnay. I agree with you. I wouldn't wouldn't really go this route. Um, I would tend to lean more towards the direction of doing a Sauvignon Blanc or something like a Gruner Veltliner from Austria, something that has some green vegetal notes to it. Uh, And in this case, vegetal in a wine is is a positive. This is uh, flavor profiles that you would expect to find from these particular grape varieties.
berries and and I would match those flavors. I wouldn't go with something that was big and oaky. But maybe they're looking for that that opposites attract uh, kind of thing with their pairing here. But yeah, I don't know. The, the oaky thing did amaze me as well. And maybe they're thinking it's a veggie pizza, maybe more salt to it. Maybe. Maybe that's what they're playing I don't know. I would lean, you know, towards something maybe more like Northern Italian if you've got something with herbal notes to it because a lot of Italian whites have this real herbaceousness to them that pairs really well with the foods from the area. So like mixture of vegetables or roasted things or peppers and asparagus and and those kind of things. So I I tend to lean towards a lighter white as opposed to a heavier white. Yeah, I agree with the Northern Italian Pinot Grigio or maybe a Vermentino, Mm. something with a little more earthiness or minerality to it would work. Perfect. Definitely that minerality. And there's also some other Italian varietals that have a little bit maybe more saline to them that would probably play well as as well. And that would also cut through that that fatty cheese. So are you a, a cold pizza fan or just a hot? I don't care. Yeah. Cold, right. hot, lukewarm. Right. <laughs> just give me a piece of pizza. Now, I was thinking, asking that because they're talking about the, the pepperoni. I think the profile of the pepperoni pizza when it's cold, you could do different wines because That's that true. grease kind of solidifies. Yeah, right? and then you have a whole different texture thing going on. So no big. Go with wine. <laughs> Go with wine and for pizza. your pizza. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We're going to talk about an article in the Beverage Daily about our consumers growing weary of the traditional... 750 milliliter glass wine bottle. Wow, that's a that was a long line, right, Kim? Yeah, it was. Uh, we talked in the past about alternate formats uh, wine has been put in, but I guess this is more about. To me, it's a good thing for manufacturers if if consumers are not liking glass because they save a lot of money with these alternative packages. Right. We talk about this from time to time in our wine classes, uh, where we talk about wines coming to us here in the states from other places in the world, and then looking at the label and seeing if you can figure out exactly where it was bottled. And often what will happen these days, especially for more commercially produced wines, is that say they're being shipped to us from New Zealand or Australia, they'll actually be shipped in like like a tanker or like a big, uh, you know, like what you see, like a milk truck uh, and not in glass bottles bottled at the source and then shipped all that glass over here because glass is really, really heavy and it takes a lot of fossil fuels and energy to transport that heavy glass. So I think that this is a a good move to um, different types of packaging. But what was, was brought up in this article that I thought was interesting was more consumer response to the actual size of the 750 milliliter bottle. And as it seems that people are drinking better, but drinking less, that sometimes this size of a bottle is just too much for people and they don't want to waste it, but they don't want to consume everything in it in one sitting. Yeah, that, I thought that was an interesting point because they say they, they're concerned about the size, that 25 ounces is too much. They want to drink less, but we always talk about the average pour and the glass sizes are increasing. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is to keep it fresh. That's what I was kind of take on that was maybe they do want a smaller size or a different format to keep the wine fresher more than it's a consuming amount. You follow that? I lost you. Not really. Keeping it fresh after it's open, you mean? Yes. 
Okay. They, they, the glass, maybe they're thinking it's hotter to preserve it after in a 750 milliliter than in, a, say, a single serve size oh, or okay. a box. Yeah, and maybe as people get more familiar with bag in a box where you know that once you've opened it, it will stay fresh for weeks or, or months. You just, you know, keep it in the fridge and pour yourself a glass whenever you whenever you want it. And, and I think as people get more familiar with that technology and they understand that there are different ways of packaging wine other than opening a bottle and having it be exposed to all this air, that maybe people are more willing to buy things that are in different types of packaging. So if, if consumers are concerned about wanting smaller sizes, they're saying 50% of all wine sold is in 750 milliliter glass. But trending box wines or big volume wines are selling huge. Mm-hmm. So it kind of contradicts what, what they were saying here, I thought. Right. Well, you know, it's also taking into consideration all of those wines that are out there that are in 750 milliliters. And if you look at wine brands that sell the most and sell the biggest, you know, thinking about the Woodbridges of the world... A lot of what is being sold for them are 1.5 milliliters. So that's twice the size of a 750 milliliter bottle. And a lot of consumers are still buying that size bottle. So that kind of goes in the opposite direction, too. It's like if people aren't willing to finish a whole 750 bottle, then you've got this other bottle that's even bigger. And hopefully they're not drinking all of that in one sitting. Right. (laughs) Well, they mentioned other reasons why they want different sizes or, or get away from the glasses. Like you mentioned, environmental friendly, maybe to bring something to a sporting event, maybe something they could chill faster, which, you know, I don't know about that one because hmm. you can chill it pretty fast. I've never considered that, but yeah. So that leads us to the concept of now there are wines available in cans and they're more, are there single serving cans? I don't think I've actually looked at the size of, of a wine in a can. Is it, how many ounces? They're milliliters. So it's a, either a 187 or 375 or a 500 milliliter. So okay. they could all be considered single pour, okay. single serve. Sure. So like a 180 is the equivalent of a good size glass of wine, a six ounce glass of wine or so. So it's a quarter of a full size bottle. And I think that that is an interesting idea for the, the portability factor, if that's what people are looking for. A little bit more casual wine consumption if you bring it camping or bring it to the beach or bring it to the pool and whatever people are, are using the product that way for. A lot of times people for the smaller packages, they just want one glass of wine. So they buy the little 187 bottle and it pours in a glass and, they, and that's it. They Mm-hmm. Don't want to have, maybe don't want to have more around or they just want that one glass with a meal. So it works out well. I've had people use those size uh, for cooking as cooking, well. Yep, you know, if popular. you need a half a cup of wine or maybe a cup of wine, those single size bottles uh, are excellent for that. So I guess the bottom line in this was people looking at, they're accepting other packages that wine are coming into and it's taking away from the glass, the traditional glass size. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us online at franklinliquors.com for Mark and vinitaswineworks.com for myself. So when people ask us about the concept of healthier wines or healthier drinking, invariably somebody will ask us about lower alcohol wines. And there are some wines on the market now that are lower in alcohol, but then there are also products on the market that come close to not having any alcohol at all. And it's not just wine. There are beers out there like this as well. 
well. And we wanted to talk a little bit about the science of how those products come to be. Yeah, how do you make a non-alcoholic wine? And and this is trending very popular in sales for me. You have a lot of people who like the flavor of wine, but they can't drink for some reason the alcohol. So they go to these and they do have like 0.5% alcohol. It's not all removed. There is traces of alcohol in it. So, But it is a product that can be sold in non-liquor stores or wine stores as well. So the key for me on these are that there's some flavor, that it actually tastes like wine because there's a few processes they can do. They, they actually make the wine and then they remove the alcohol. So there are a few products out there. Some will add a juice to it to give it the wine flavor. But Kim, have you ever tried or any yeah. of these? This is sort of the, the bugaboo for me about this topic of when you are making a wine product, but then it doesn't have the alcohol. And how do you make it so that you it still retains the flavors of wine, but just doesn't have the alcohol in it? And there is a, a difference between wine and grape juice above and beyond, oh, there's just alcohol in it. it it's more complicated than that because the process of fermentation uh, is what produces a lot of the unique flavors in wine and the unique flavors in beer. So it's not just that there, it's, it's not all just the same kind of fruit juice. There is all this chemistry that happens during fermentation. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, just like wine isn't the same as grape juice, it, it's kind of like eat a cucumber and then eat a pickle. Like, you know that there are definite flavor changes changes there. And that is all because of the microbial activity. And it's the same thing for alcoholic fermentation as well. So these wines are fermented, normal, made. The process is totally the same as wine that has alcohol. And then they follow two processes to, to remove it, one of two processes. And they both involve heat at some point. And, and you could totally just heat it up and remove the alcohol, but it kills, like you were saying, it kills the profile of the wine. Yeah, it kills the flavor and, cha- ch- and changes the flavor as well. So when you heat up alcohol or uh, eat up a bit a beverage to evaporate the alcohol. You're also changing a lot of the aromas. You're destroying some of the more delicate chemical compounds in there that contribute to the flavor and the aromas of the wine. So the, f- the first method is they would set up at a low temperature. They ferment the wine, then they put it through a low temperature, sort of a vacuum that goes through cones. And after that, the alcohol kind of evaporates. But the process at the end, they have to add something back to the wine or what's left of of wine to give it flavor. So sometimes they'll use juice. Sometimes they'll add a little bit more water to it. Some countries don't allow added things like that. Mm So for instance, one of the popular lines, uh, Sutter Home makes one called Free, F-R-E, and they contain, it'll tell you the percentage of fruit juice they add back to it to give it some flavor. This seems to be the completely opposite of sort of that natural wine movement that a lot of people are into these days where there's much less, say, scientific or... yeah. Uh, yeah, more more hands-off approach from the winemaker, more along the lines of we're going to pick the grapes and we're going to throw it in a barrel and we're just going to let it do its thing. This is the, the other side of the interventionist coin where there's all this stuff being done to it so that you can remove what is an integral part of the beverage to begin with. And there's also, besides this heat treating process, there's also a process of like filtration that it can go through 
where the, the membranes and the filters are so small that the alcohol stays on one side and most everything else goes through on the other side. But I can imagine that must strip a lot of the flavor compounds from it as well. And I think that's why they have to add something at, at the end to, to give it. And I, I would assume they could, the fruit juice thing is probably the better method than to just water it down. You get more flavor. Mm-hmm. So if you add, But say, it's not wine juice. flavor then, then it's fruit juice flavor. So yeah, you're but not say getting you have those... a Chardonnay and you add apple juice to it of like 5%, at least you're giving it the flavor of the profile, the, the variety and true. not cutting it down. And I, what I see is people really appreciate an option. Same thing with non-alcoholic beers, which is probably more popular than the non-alcoholic wine. But the wine drinkers, it's very popular if someone's pregnant and they are wine drinkers, but they want to have a little taste of wine. They can have this and be safe. I, I have to say that when I was pregnant with my kids that I had more success with non-alcoholic beer than I had with non-alcoholic wine. And maybe that's just because I'm a wine geek and so I'm more particular about my wine. But I was happier to find some non-alcoholic beers out there that I could at least enjoy every once in a while. <laughs> but I, t- I kind of stayed away from the non-alcoholic wines because I really couldn't find one that I really liked. There are definitely more options in the beer. It, you're not seeing that the wines that are coming non-alcoholic, they're big producers, the Sada Homes, or I'm trying to think of some others. Is it Fetzer that maybe makes one? I believe so. Um, but you're not seeing any winemakers that are small production to say, yeah, I'm going to take some of my good wine and I'm going to make non-alcoholic. We're not seeing any non-alcoholic Bordeaux out there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something, the niche, I guess, or the the shelf space for it is very small, but I do have a big following of, of customers who are looking for it and are very happy when they find it. For certain, They do make also a sparkling version. So when it, people like, the, instead of using the sparkling, like, uh, what is it, Welch's or grape juice sparkling, mm-hmm. it's actually tastes like sparkling wine, but it has no alcohol. So hmm. it's another option. I wonder if it would make a cocktail. I, I would think uh, hmm. it would work. Maybe I need to try you it. should try it. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to find out more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to find out more information about our show and these articles, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we had found a wine blog that was talking about more corks are now being used in Australia and New Zealand than screw caps. And Kim, we always talk about the screw cap and these two countries have always been big in screw cap wines. I saw this and I was like, what? Cork in Australia and New Zealand? Like, no way. Like for the last 15 years, they've been heading in the opposite direction where they have almost gone completely over to using screw caps as their closure of choice, even for $100 bottles of Shiraz. Yeah. And typically most of the time, like New Zealand, it's it's crisp Sauvignon Blanc. You want to probably drink right away. So the idea was keep it fresh and with the screw cap and make it easy. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking now a lot of the cork producers are making better products. So that might be a big reason why they are now looking back at it. Right. It seems like with this move to screw caps that a lot of producers in a lot of places went to over the last couple of decades, it has been the best thing to happen to the cork industry. It's like it didn't destroy the industry. What it did was it got rid of the lower tier of product that wasn't very good quality. So then now all or most 
most of the cork that's on the market is better quality cork and it made people pay attention to what they were buying, what they were using, and the quality of uh, of the corks that were out there on the market made all the cork producers really kind of step up their game. And then there were changes to the industry as well for different types of closures using cork. So now there are better corks out there and people are learning after now having all this experience of bottling their wines under screw caps, what wines do better with those closures and then what wines really still do better under a cork closure to let in a little bit of oxygen, but not too much. And you can find all different stats on how many, what percentage of wines made or finished with cork are guaranteed bad because of the cork. And it's anywhere between one and 5%. So I'm assuming as the years go on and products are getting better, it's going way down. So that gives these people confidence to go back to using cork. Yeah. I have to say that over the last couple of years, the incidence of getting a corked bottle for me really have been a lot lower. So I don't think that I've run across more than I would say one corked bottle a month and I open a lot of wine. Yeah. So do you feel that maybe now that they've had wines and screw cap for so long, they're finding some negative feedback on the aging maybe? I think so. And this was always the wild card when we were starting to see more and more things being bottled under screw caps in, you know, in, the, in the early years of, um, you know, say 19, I mean, sorry, 2001, 2002, where starting to see more screw caps. And, and the big question that people threw at us was, how will these wines age? Is it going to be the same? And now we have some data to say that this is what happens over the long term when you have a bottle under a screw cap. And there were adjustments that winemakers had to make to sulfur levels and to fill levels. I know we talk about how much more wine you get when you have a bottle that is under a screw cap as opposed to under a cork. So there were these little adjustments that people had to make. And now we're seeing that over time, there are certain wines that do seem to do a little bit better with cork uh, for whatever reason, whether it's the grape variety and it needs a little bit more softening because of exposure with oxygen, or is it a bottle that really could benefit better by being under a screw cap where freshness is is the thing that you're really going for. So the corks do allow a little bit of air to get into the wine that helps it kind of develop mm-hmm. where the screw cap is just totally tight seal. So when you first open them, it's a difference. Right. Oxygen is a funny thing when it comes to wine, this relationship between oxygen and wine. A little bit is usually a good thing and a lot of it is not necessarily a good thing. So time and a little bit of oxygen does benefit a lot of styles of wine, especially those bigger, fuller bodied reds, your cabs and your higher end things from Northern Italy or some of these big Australian Shirazes actually probably could benefit a little bit from having the the cork enclosure instead. So that will be interesting to see. What's the most common question you get about people asking about screw cap wines? I still get questions about, is it a cheap wine if it's got a screw cap? I get that question less and less these days, but there is still sort of that misconception that it must be a less expensive, lower quality wine if it has a screw cap to it. So I still receive those questions. But then every once in a while, I, I do get the question about how how to you know how to store it. Do you still need to lay it down on its side if you put it in a wine in a wine cellar? And how is it going to develop? Is it is it going to do the same things that it would have done if there was a cork in there? See, I I think that's interesting because I feel people are now accepting it as there can be good wines in, in a screw cap, and now they might go away from it. So they I think they built up acceptance where there was some negative you know thinking it's cheap. That's good. Now it's they're accepting it, but now okay we're going to go back. So if you've been so they're accepting it, it, but not oh they're accepting it, and so now they understand it. But now that's got a cork again, they're like, what the heck? Correct. So say you were (laughs) buying a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. 
Blanc and it's always been screw cap and all of a sudden there's a cork in it. I kind of feel well, like it'd be weird to have a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc with a cork again. I don't know the last time I had one with a cork. Yeah, I, I can't think of any of it. Had. Yeah, um, but it, it's interesting to see the, the changes being made to the cork industry. And one of the things that was mentioned uh, in this blog was of this type of composite cork that now is being produced that undergoes a treatment so that it kills anything in the cork that could lead to that cork taint. So when, when we talk about cork taint, it's this um, infection, I guess you can say, that the cork tree, the cork bark has during production and that when it comes in contact with certain cleaning solutions that are found in wineries, it will pretty much destroy the flavor and the aroma of the wine. It'll give this give it this smell of like wet cardboard and kind of this moldy, yucky, mushroomy kind of a smell. And it's caused by this um, this mold. And what this process does is it treats it with carbon dioxide, I believe. It sounded like it was a similar process to deca- decaffeinating coffee, where it undergoes this treatment and it removes all of these impurities within the cork so that you have this like super clean product that then when that's used as the cork uh, in the wine, then you don't have any of these faulty bottles. Yeah, the, the cork producers, the industry itself, they're very powerful companies. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you'll see these white papers or reports that are saying it's a better quality, but I don't know if you can believe it because it's from the actual producers themselves. So no, that's their whole business. So when you were saying earlier about you haven't maybe had a corked wine in a while, I, I'm just amazed at how many times, well, the more we taste, we don't say drink, we say taste. Because we You taste. can detect it, a corked bottle or a bad bottle a lot better if, the more you taste. And I'm just amazed at people that will present me a wine and it's corked. Mm-hmm. And they're presenting it and they know they're either from the winery or something. So um, so you still run across a fair number of corked bottles? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and um, I think it's because we taste so much, maybe we're more sensitive to it. So I'm all for the screw cap just for that reason. And we always say, well, I always recommend people if they're gifting a bottle, give a screw cap so you know it's guaranteed good and not cork. Right. I would rather be sure that the bottle that I'm opening or the bottle that I'm bringing, I mean, would tough for me if you know I'm bringing one bottle of everything to an event or a tasting. And if I open that bottle and it's a bad bottle, I can't use it. So then we're down a bottle. So I try to think if I have a, a bottle with a cork in it, do I need to bring a backup? Do I need to worry about this? Well, I don't have that worry if I have a screw cap, which is a nice peace of mind thing for me as a professional. Thank you for listening to us today at the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Check us out and see all of the articles and trends in wine that we've been following. <laughs>